0: I'll be reading Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 26 and 51 to 57. Now I should remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, through which you also are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you, as of the first importance, what I in turn had received, that Christ Jesus, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers and sisters at one time, most of them whom are still alive though some have died then he appeared to James then to all the apostles last of all as to someone untimely born he appeared also to me for I am the least of the apostles unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God but by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace towards me has not been in vain on the contrary I worked harder than any of them though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me whether then it was I or they we proclaim and so we have come to believe now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead if there is no resurrection of the dead then Christ has not been raised and if Christ has not been raised and our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified of God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you, and you, and sit, and your your sins, and and you and. Futile, and you are still in your sins. Then, those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are are of all most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, The resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes to an end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable body must be put on imperishability, and this mortal body must be put on immortability. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortability, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory
1: through our Lord Jesus Christ. Great, thank you, good to see you all. Thank you to those uh, especially who have contributed so far, Nickwith uh, for reading. That is one of the great uh, readings in terms of uh, depths of theology, uh, but it is, it's hard to get your head around. One of the commentators I was looking at this week Uh, was putting 1 Corinthians 15 up there with Romans 8 in terms of uh, complicated passages to think about. And uh, we're going to try and get our heads around it a little bit over the next few minutes. Um, In our reading, so, we find here Paul offering the most extended theological exploration of the significance of resurrection that we find anywhere in the New Testament. And uh, here we are today in the, in the liturgical year, just a few days uh, after the day of Ascension, which was on Thursday. And so we're invited to turn our eyes once again towards the resurrected Christ. In this chapter, Paul was responding to those in Corinth who simply didn't believe in the reality of resurrection. Now we know quite a bit about the early Corinthian church. They appear to have been what, in ministerial terms, is technically known as a nightmare congregation. You get uh, conversations about congregations like that sometimes on Baptist Minister's Facebook groups. They were uh, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, extremely diverse group of recent converts to Christianity. They represented religious backgrounds ranging from Torah-observant Judaism to Greek paganism, to Roman emperor worship. So getting any kind of agreement on key issues was always going to be something of a nightmare in in a group as diverse as this. And we certainly see this in Paul's letters to the Corinthian church, where he ends up having to address everything from money to sex to theology, as he tries to help this group of people Work out what it means for them to follow Jesus in their context. And at the heart of all this, for Paul, is the issue of resurrection. The question of how one should be a Christian in the world is a second-order question. It follows on directly from what one believes about resurrection. Or perhaps to put it the other way around, Paul might have said... If you haven't got your belief in resurrection sorted, you're never going to work out the right answers to any of the other questions that those who would follow Jesus are going to have to grapple with. Part of the problem was that the uh, diversity of religious backgrounds in those he was writing to meant that there was no common ground on which to build an argument for a Christ-centred understanding of resurrection. I'll give you a bit of the background to help us unpack this. Uh, staying with Judaism for a moment, the Jews had a variety of opinions about what happened when people died. So if we go back to uh, the Hebrew scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, uh, you will find there that they tend, those texts tend to speak of death as a place of rest or as a void, a place of nothingness. And then just occasionally you get glimpses, uh, particularly in some of the later documents that make up the Hebrew Bible, the the, the Old Testament. You get occasional glimpses in these later documents, that, in some way there's a belief that the spirit of a person might return to the God who had given the gift of life in the first place. In Jesus' own time, there were debates between different Jewish factions on whether there was any kind of existence for the individual beyond the grave. And any notion of resurrection, uh, you remember, you get get the Sadducees who who don't believe in the resurrection and the Pharisees who do. Uh, The easy way to remember the difference is uh, the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection, which is why they are sad, you see. Anyway, um, but even for those who did believe in resurrection at the time of Jesus, The notion of resurrection was tied up with the idea of the whole nation being resurrected and restored to its promised land. It it wasn't really an idea of an individual being raised. It was more about God's people being raised collectively and restored to their land. So for the Jews, the body and the soul were largely considered to be a united entity. And any resurrection involved not only the nation, but also the entire person, their body and their spirit. So it's it's a very much a kind of holistic view of resurrection. And there were some people from that background in the church in Corinth. But they were probably in a minority. And most of the people in the church in Corinth would have come from Greek and Roman uh, contexts. And when we look at the Greco-Roman ideas around resurrection, the situation is equally confusing with an equally diverse set of opinions about the relationship of a person's spirit to their body. So probably the dominant view was uh, that which we now call Platonic dualism. This is the idea originating with the Greek philosopher Plato that the soul is kind of imprisoned in the body. In other words, that the body and the spirit are not a united entity, a united whole, but rather they're divided. They've been forced into an uneasy alliance for the duration of a person's life. And Platonism taught that the physical world is merely a poor shadow of the true reality that lies beyond. And so the physical body of a person is just a poor shadow of their true self, which exists in its most real form as a perfected spirit. So by a kind of platonic understanding of body and soul, the corruptible body is corrupting the soul, but one day the soul will be freed from its mortal shell. And when the body dies, the spirit is freed to become most fully real and perfect. So, We've got multiple views on mortality and immortality and multiple views on the unity or separation of the body and the soul. And all of these are in the background to what Paul is trying to say about the resurrection of Jesus. From a Jewish perspective, the resurrection of a person must involve their their body because body and soul are a unity. Whether the person is resurrected back into their old body to walk again on the earth, or into a new body walking on a renewed earth, the point is still the same. Your body and your soul are a unity and resurrection must involve both. However, from a Platonic Greek view, any ongoing life of the spirit must be about freeing the soul from its corruptible and corrupting body. So for the Greeks, any talk about resuscitating the corruptible body was not an attractive idea. So Paul responds by inventing a concept to try and help draw together these two very different religious strands. Listen again to what he says in verses 50 to 54, and I'm just going to read it in a slightly different translation. This is the one by Father Nicholas King from Oxford. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Corruption does not inherit uncorruption. Look, I'm telling you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed in a nanosecond, in the blink of an eye at the final trumpet. For the trumpet will signal, and then the dead shall be raised undecayed. And for ourselves, we shall be changed. For this decaying part must put on undecay, and this mortal part put on immortality well. This is one of those passages that has been hijacked by the kind of Christianity that looks for a future moment of transformation. You know the type, suddenly some heavenly trumpet sounds from the sky and all the believers are caught up into the air. It's one of the famous rapture passages as they're known. And if you don't know what I'm talking about then don't worry about it because when, I, when this passage is heard in the context of those Paul was writing to, I think his words make a lot of sense. He's trying to draw together the Jewish and the Greek ideas about the afterlife and make sense of them in the light of Jesus. And one of the problems we can have here, encountering Paul's thinking on the nature of resurrection, is that as Western Christians, We are the religious and philosophical heirs to Platonic dualism. So we have a tendency to hear talk about body and soul from a dualistic perspective, as if one glad day our spirits will be freed from this mortal and corruptible shell and will go off and flutter up on high to be with Jesus in his heaven. And, And we tend to hear language of resurrection as being about my spirit fluttering off to be with God when I die. Except, I think St Paul would want to say to us, as he said to the Platonic journalists of Corinth, that isn't what resurrection's about. For Paul, resurrection is absolutely not about escaping from the problems, trials and tribulations of this present darkness to fly away to a better place. Rather, Resurrection, and specifically the resurrection of Jesus, is the defining and decisive moment where Christ destroys every ruler, authority and power that has ever held dominion over the lives of human beings. Listen to verses 24 to 26 again. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The primary context Paul has in mind here, when he speaks of rulers, authorities and powers, is, of course, the imperial rulers of the Roman Empire. But he also has in view those spiritual forces that lie behind them including, interestingly, death itself. To understand what's going on here we need to remember that Paul wasn't just a Greek-educated intellectual. He was also a Jewish apocalyptic mystic and what he certainly wasn't was a contemporary Western scientific rationalist. For Paul, the resurrection of the dead wasn't understood as a simple restoration of those who have fallen asleep, as he euphemistically calls it, those who have died, to some kind of walking, talking, living and loving post-mortem experience. Neither for Paul was the resurrection the same thing as the zombie apocalypse from a horror movie where newly undead corruptible and part decayed bodies are reanimated and re-inhabited by their immortal souls to lurch the earth for eternity. Rather, for Paul, the language of resurrection, so central to his Christian faith, needs to be heard in the context of the historical problem for which God's deliverance and resurrection was the solution. In other words, for Paul, resurrection is all about the end of imperial rule, It's about the end of the Empire. Specifically, it was about the end of the Roman domination of the known world. Although, as we have seen, it was also about the ending of the underlying spiritual powers that gave the Roman Empire its force and motivation to distort, demean, and destroy humanity to its own service. And this is where and why, for Paul, it all comes down to the resurrection of Jesus, rather than just the concept of resurrection more generally. Because Jesus was crucified, and for a Jew like Paul, the crucifixion of the Jewish Messiah was the most potent symbol of the victory of the Roman imperial domination system over the Jewish God. Crucifixion was absolutely a Roman punishment and it is not lost on Paul that Jesus died at the hands of the Roman Empire. At the crucifixion the Messiah appeared to lose and the Emperor appeared to win. So for Paul to assert that Christ is risen is making a profound statement about the power of the Emperor The resurrection of Jesus is a potent symbol of the victory of God over the very powers that had killed him. As Paul puts it, the resurrected Christ has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. It's almost as if, in Paul's thought, God makes Christ the counter-emperor, who will ultimately destroy the earthly imperial rulers having already defeated their spiritual power base at the Resurrection. But Paul doesn't stop there. This isn't just about 1st century Rome and 1st century Israel. It might be first about 1st century Rome and 1st century Israel, but that is not the end of this story. Rome and Israel are just the examples in his time and place of a far deeper and more long-lasting victory. So to make this point, Paul borrows an image from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible, and he says that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. This idea of first fruits comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26, if you're interested, and it was the idea that when harvesting, the first fruit that you gather, the first sheaf of wheat or whatever, should be presented as an offering to God as a symbol of the fact that the whole harvest that is yet to come also belongs to God. I think we have a similar practice in the way we give our offerings of money to the church, to God. Um, I have my standing order set up so that you know a couple of days after my stipend hits my bank account, the money comes out and goes to the church. And that's a symbol, and we often pray this when we dedicate the offering, that the gifts we're giving to the church, whilst they are real, are also symbolic of the fact that everything we have left also belongs to God. So, if the resurrected Christ is the first fruits, what is this full harvest that will follow? If Christ is the first fruit of resurrection, what is still to come? Well, it seems that Paul sets his sights rather high. Verse 21 For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order Christ, the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then at the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he's destroyed every ruler and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The resurrection of Christ isn't just about the defeat of imperial rule in the first century. It isn't just about the defeat of the spiritual powers that lay behind the Roman Empire. It isn't just about the overthrow of earthly powers in any age that take the imperial spirit and reinvent it in their own time and context. Rather, the resurrection of Christ is about the resurrection of all things. It's about the ultimate defeat of death itself. As all of humanity, and indeed all of creation, is freed from the tyranny of death, and made truly alive once again. This is a view of resurrection which changes literally everything because it is about the impact of resurrected life in the here and now as we are released from the tyranny of death. By this understanding of resurrection, the world is not something to be endured, it's something to be redeemed it's not somewhere to escape from it's somewhere to live in life in all its fullness it's a world that that is crying out for the life-giving spirit of the resurrected Christ which comes to those who are oppressed by the powers and empires of any day and age it's a world that desperately needs the faithful witness and service Of those who have themselves already received the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Friends, I think we need to move way beyond a view of resurrection that focuses on where we go when we die. I think we need to recognize that this passage from St. Paul, the great chapter on resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, is not about where we go when we die. It is about the gift of God through the resurrection of Christ to us and all people that life lived now can be lived in all its fullness as we are freed from the tyranny of death and as the future, God's future, breaks into the present in ways that transform the lives of all those of us who long for restoration. This is a gospel of resurrection that makes all the difference in the world to today and tomorrow and to yesterday. Thanks be to God.
2: Loving God, having listened again this Sunday, we come wanting to believe in the power of your resurrection. We come with what little faith we have, but also we admit that we bring our fears, our grief, and or doubt. We recognise that we are living in a difficult world where so many, many people in so many countries have been affected by the pandemic. It sometimes feels like death is winning and we are left feeling helpless. Our country has been affected, our city has been affected and we too have felt the negative effects. So we bring to you now this world We pray for those who are grieving at this time, those who have lost loved ones or are fearful that they may lose loved ones. We pray for those who are sick and for those who are recovering and those providing care. Thank you for all the glimpses of resurrection we have seen over the past few months. Thank you for our NHS, for those really working on the front line. Thank you for neighbours and volunteers and all those people that in the past we admit we have often ignored, like delivery drivers and shop assistants, fruit pickers and essential service providers, perhaps those not able to stay safe now. We pray for all those working long hours who are tired and in need of rest. But we also pray for those who have lost their work, for those struggling with redundancy or being furloughed, For those living with uncertainty, for those struggling with debt and financial fears, for business owners, employers and employees, for those having to make really difficult decisions, for those fearing for the future. We pray for the vulnerable in our communities that inevitably end up being worse affected. We thank you for those who are trying to provide help and support for food banks, mutual aid groups, for charities and churches. Thank you for the glimpses of resurrection that are there if we dare to look. We pray for those who are feeling more isolated than they ever thought possible, for those lonely and for those struggling with their mental health. We pray for those who are trapped and in danger, for those whose home is not a safe space for those who do not have a home in which to isolate. Help those that need it most experience a little bit more of your deep love. And we ask that you will show us how we can get alongside people, but also how we can give people the practical support or even the space they may need. Help Bloomsbury to continue to be an inclusive community. Even though we have had to change so much, Help us to see the resurrection possibilities and where we are now. And we pray for our government and for the government and leaders of all nations. We ask that they will seek wisdom and work for justice, that there might be integrity and real care rather than a grabbing for power. We pray that people will be put before profit, but we recognize the complex decisions that fall on some people's shoulders. We pray that we will recognise when we are able to influence decision for the common good. We pray you will give us the courage to stand up and challenge challenge when when that is needed. We also want to stop and remember those who are not in the news as much as they might have been because of the virus. but those who do, still need our prayers. For those living with natural disasters and accidents, For those who are now grieving because they lost loved ones in the recent plane crash in Pakistan. For those who have to live with the true horror of global warming on a daily basis. For those caught up in conflict and injustice. For those who were just born in the wrong nation or the wrong community or the wrong body to be able to live life to its full. Help us to look beyond ourselves and our own. Show us how we can bring your resurrection to our world. Help us to see how we can make a difference and give us the courage to be resurrected ourselves into action this coming week. So we do pray for ourselves. We all need saving again and again and again. Set us free from those negative things that hold us captive, things that distort and stop us living life in all its fullness the addictions, the emotions that paralyze, the possessions we worship, the past we can't forget, the habits, the behavior that stops us being who we could be. We ask that you will show us your grace. Let us know how deeply you love us and continue this resurrection work in us. Help us know how to hope and live in the now rather than trying to escape. Help us to be transformed and learn how to transform. Help us to see things differently. The cross was not failure. It was through the cross that resurrection was possible. We don't want this to just be twee theology that we know we should believe. We ask for your strength to hold firm and the courage to live with the mystery and even the doubt. Help us to work out what resurrection means for us this week. Help us to see those glimpses, even in this horrid time. Thank you, risen Christ. We dare to believe that you have ultimate authority and that your resurrection power is breaking into hopeless situations all around us. Resurrection is life out of death and hope out of hopelessness. We dare to believe that you continue to free us and invite us to live again and discover life in all its fullness. As we look to Pentecost, we ask for your Holy Spirit to bring us peace and assurance today. In Jesus' name. Amen.